This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. When Dr. Tracy Westerman left uh, her home in Pilbara to attend university to study psychology, she struggled to reconcile mainstream psychological practices with Aboriginal culture. Her work in mental health care in Aboriginal communities has garnered international acclaim and in 2018, she was named Australian of the Year for Western Australia. Today, we are honoured to have Tracy on the line with us to talk to her about her work and her personal journey. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning. What a fantastic introduction that was. I know. Well, I mean, when you've got a doctor in front of your name and you do the work you do, you need to have a pretty fancy intro, right? Well, certainly, but I do need to correct you. It's not the Pilbara, it's the Pilbara. That's oh, how we gosh. pronounce it. Um, pronounce it over here. I have to I have to clip your wings straight away. No, that <laughs> that's fine. I never never mess with Western Australians. They're always far wiser than I am. Um, <laughs> We're going to get along already. <laughs> Uh, so I think this is a really fascinating conversation of the profound differences between Aboriginal culture and Western culture. And mm. what you've found is kind of an area where there's a, a real distinct deficiency within um, Western mainstream psychological practices and the way they connect with Indigenous Australians. Can you kind of talk to us about the shortfalls and the shortcomings of that? Yeah, there's so many. I guess, I mean, the best thing to always start with these conversations is start from the origin of it, I guess. And um, that is, as an 18-year-old kid coming down from the Pilbara, um, I actually did distance education. So my community and I guess my background was was fairly remote um, coming down to the city. And I was so excited about studying psychology, you couldn't imagine how exciting it was. And then sitting in lecture theatres and effectively my people were invisible. We're invisible in the textbooks, invisible in the best practice treatment interventions, invisible in all the training provided to psychologists. It was fairly evident, obviously, that the training should match what the statistics are telling you. So given that, you know, most psychologists, I would suggest probably about 30% of their service delivery and obviously higher in remote areas was about, you know, interfacing with Indigenous clients at risk. So the fact that we weren't skilling them up, um, it was actually quite shocking to me just from that really early stage as an 18-year-old kid. And for me, the difficulty was to try and reconcile what was being taught um, with my worldview that was just so incredibly different from what I was being taught. So to be honest, you know, I reeled. I was reeling a little bit when I first came down to study psychology because I'd spent my entire life wanting to do this thing, become a psychologist. And then when I came into the training, it just didn't match. Um, And I thought to myself, if this is psychology, then perhaps I've got it wrong. And so for the first time, I actually questioned questioned whether I'd made a right decision. I mean, then reconciling those two has got to be profoundly challenging Mm -hmm. because you're dealing with, you know, let's say Western mainstream culture, which is let's Mm. establish large communities that have epicentres and vast infrastructure with a nomadic system that is word of mouth, um, dream time language, not only that, each each tribe and each nation within that community kind of have different focuses, different languages. I mean, that's got to be profoundly hard to then integrate into those cultures. Yeah, I guess it is. And I think that's effectively why, you know, governments always go on about evidence-based practice. And so for me, what I knew fundamentally is psychology provided, you know, cut through that, psychology is very much on really focuses on the scientist practitioner model. Mm-hmm. So the science informs the practice. So for me, my my big challenge was to how to make culture scientific. 
<laughs> and it's a great <laughs> question, how do you make culture scientific? But ultimately what I knew is that if we didn't have um, population level um, evidence of difference, then big systems would not move very because they don't. So for me, it was really, really incredibly challenging, obviously, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to challenge decades of mainstream psychological theory. But the best way you can actually do that is challenge challenge it in a way that mainstream systems understand, and that is by irrefutable science of difference. Hopefully that makes sense. No, absolutely. Mm. absolutely. But you've got to do this in Australia Mm. over vast different distances between (laughs) vastly different communities. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I think in, in science is that you have a control, right? Here's our control, and this is what we're going to use as a measuring stick to see the differences. But you don't even have a control. Like, you've got to establish a brand new control to then do your measurements off, right? Yep, absolutely. You've got to start from nothing. So ultimately, all roads lead to assessment, right? Mm. So what I actually knew as a 27-year-old kid, I had a hunch at that stage, obviously, suicides were escalating, particularly in Western Australia and white communities were escalating beyond... um, you know, getting to the highest suicide rates in the world, particularly with our young children. What was actually happening was back in the 90s, there was a lot of work around early intervention and prevention, which involved screening kids at an early stage of risk just to make something really complex, as simple as I can. What I knew, a lot of Aboriginal kids were being excluded from even basic things around assessment because ultimately people, psychologists, weren't trained in in how to undertake mental health assessment. A lot of assessment obviously involves therapeutic alliance and understanding someone's worldview. Mm. So if you don't even have that basic understanding, you can't get in and establish therapeutic alliance, which I actually refer to as cultural empathy, which is very different. Walk a mile in someone's shoes mm. is really what I talk about. The next thing is we need to actually fundamentally figure out whether suicide looks different, are the risk factors different, are the causes of why Indigenous people die by suicide different? Does depression look different? So I took a hunch, um, a 27-year-old kid, and I decided to develop a uh, the first psychometric test, the Westerman Aboriginal Symptom Checklist for Youth. Mm. And that basically, it started from scratch effectively, went out and asked Indigenous communities, what, does, what do you notice when there's a build-up of depression? What do you notice when there's a build-up of an act of suicide? So we got the components, or if you like, the risk factors right. So we started from scratch. It is high risk because it's a lot of work. That's the first thing. The second thing is then you have to scientifically um, demonstrate that the measure itself stands up against mainstream measures in terms of the science and the psychometrics and a whole raft of things that are so boring, I'll probably put your listeners to sleep. <laughs> but it's, it's, <laughs> I can talk about psychological testing for days, right? Yeah. So once, once we actually understood that things look different, we're then able to um, you know, go out and sample kids um, 13 to 17 year old kids that was then identified as um, you know crucial in early intervention and also getting assessment right the next thing that occurred was that we then went okay if these things are different what we need to do is we need to design intervention programs around those differences mm. so assessment has a real knock-on effect it enables you to screen at early intervention it enables you to gauge the impact of your treatment and then ultimately it enables you to develop evidence-based programs to skill communities up around what the differences look like at an ongoing level. And that's pretty much what I've spent the last 20 years doing um, around, around one, of the, one of the areas that I've worked in. 
So what, one of the things we talk about um, on Breakfast Before is, mm-hmm. is this kind of idea, which I, I guess was a government initi- initiative, the closing the gap. Right, is that you have all these, mm. you have all these markers within indigenous culture that are outliers, and um, yeah. and we're trying to close those gaps. So incarceration obviously sits in there, um, suicide sits in there, depression sits in there. There's a whole a bunch of other things. Mm. You sit right on the spearhead of that because you're like, if we're going to close the gap, then we actually need to understand ways to help mend relationship, reconcile and rebuild. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, I mean, this is the thing. I do a lot of work on um, cultural competency and and I do a lot of... I've developed about seven unique psychometric tests. One was the one I just described, which was screening Aboriginal youth. One is screening adults, so that enables clinicians to screen at a more culturally appropriate manner. The next thing I do a lot of work around is cultural competency. Mm. So what I do is I develop some tools to determine or test for cultural competency and then intervene. There's about 15 different dimensions that we've identified. Um, and then what I do is I take them through workshops that quite high risk, actually. We, I, the science actually supports it, though. So what I do is I put people into scenarios that make unconscious bias or unconscious racism more conscious to them. Mm. And then what we know in terms of what shifts people is you need to give them strategies to move them. Um, but ultimately, if you don't identify um, racism or cultural incompetence, then you can't actually shift it. So, that, but that's actually really challenging because you don't want people to be in a space where it's so confronting that they disengage, because then you've lost the opportunity. I kind of think of myself in my own education is that I was, you know, I'm 38, 39 this year. So at school I I was taught that Australia was founded in 1788 by Captain Cook when he arrived on the first fleet, right? And then after we went through a history, history lesson, we then went into social studies and then social studies said, no, actually, no, there's Aboriginal cultures have been around, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And I, mm. it was really hard for me to reconcile that for a long time. And it it was a yeah. cultural ignorance, you know, like it's like it's not an obstinance. It's just that I had no, no framework at all for an Aboriginal cultural perspective. And when we got to year 11, you know, we had a – I was I feel like the whitest human on earth talking to you, Tracy, because <laughs> I, I, I went to an all-boy – I went to an all-boy private school and I remember the moment when we had an Aboriginal kid come to our school because guess what? He was exceptional at sport, you know, um, play, yeah, right, played on the wing yeah. in the rugby team. And I always, I was yeah. like, mate, why aren't you hanging out with the rest of us? Why don't you get what we're all about? And for him, it yeah. was a, it was a mind blowing cultural phenomenon being a part of this, you know, this institution. Yeah, yeah and there's so many dimensions to that. I think, um, I mean, you've just neatly described unconscious bias. Yeah. Um, the technical term we use is um, perceptual segregation, which effectively means, I mean, there's little activity in the workshops, for example, where. Um, you actually talk about the people in your trust, in a trust circle. So who are the people that you would go to if you had some distressing thing happen? Who's in your inner trust circle? And what ultimately came out was that the people that you trusted the most look like you, think like you, and act like you. Yeah. So the people that are further away in terms of the ones that you just say good day to, like the kid who's a legend footballer, um, are in your, you know, are, are not in that trust, in the trust circle. So what happens is just the exposure's not there. Mm. Um, and ultimately what then happens is um, people need to think, actually put effort and thought into 
their bias or their racism. Whereas for me, I gave an occasional address a couple of weeks ago in front of beautiful Curtin University graduates, psychology and social work graduates. And I've actually, I actually said to them that I've ultimately learned that my disadvantage is actually an advantage because femaleness, remoteness, indigenousness, um, all these things aren't invisible to me. Yeah. And so they're conscious. If someone talks to me about something, I'm const- constantly saying, what about Indigenous people? What about remote people? What about females? What about people from rural areas who grow up without all these advantages of education? So that is such an advantage because I don't have to force myself to think about disadvantage. I, I almost get a sense, Tracy, that you kind of function like a, a, a conduit between two cultures. You know, like on one platform, you're going mm-hmm. and working with these uh, rural Indigenous communities. And then on the other yeah. one, you get invited to speak on these international platforms to major <laughs> boards and major fronts, you know, of academia. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and be, because yeah. they're so removed and so very different and the interactions between them are so very different. You're kind of wearing a life, you're in a life of hats right now. I've got to put this hat on and now I'm over here, I'm putting this hat on. How do you manage kind of reconciling yeah. all of that? It's really interesting. I think initially um, I found it, it like, like anything, um, that's, that's a challenge. You, the cogs grind reasonably slowly when you first start doing it. So example would be, I'd do workshops and I'd have a psychiatrist in the room, psychologist in the room, and I'd have people that would, Indigenous people that would come down that wouldn't even open the workbooks because they couldn't read and write. Yeah. So what you then have to do as a, as a trainer, you've got people paying to come and listen to you in, in your workshop. So you need to give the psychologists and the clinicians all the, the flash technical speak, mm. but you also have to explain it in a way that the Indigenous elder understands as well. Um, so initially, how, what, it, what it comes down to, it comes down to this really great thing called code switching. So code switching is everyone struggling on the basis of language difference. Mm. So you explain the really technical term, the psychological term, and then you explain it in a way that Indigenous people understand through, um, through, through language change. Ultimately, that what then happens is at the end of the workshop, if people are struggling clinically, then they've got the clinical words. If people are struggling culturally, then they've got the cultural words. At the end of the day, if people have both um, both both clinical and cultural words and language and expertise, then our people are able to be advocated for much better. And so that's what I found. Um, I'm finding I find it really really effortless now. Though I find it quite easy to do it, but it's taken like, many years of practice. Obviously, <laughs> I'm just I'm picturing you in a room full of like trained psychologists from some high end Western yeah. institution, along with. Um, yeah. Uh, your aunties and uncles who are, you know, elders yeah. from these communities and you, you have to switch gears, like dissociative syndrome over here. Now I've got to break that down. In a t- I mean, that's that's a really yeah. complex thing to pull off. Oh, absolutely it is. And I and I, I minimise how, how complex it is because I've been doing it for so long, but I've, I've lost count over the years of elders coming up to me and saying, I don't know how you do this. Or non-Indigenous people say, I don't know how you do this. And I guess when you have 25, I think 25,000 people I've just ticked over who've yep. come to my workshops, I don't think there's any, you know, someone said to me, I don't think there's any trainer in Australia, black, white or brindle, who's had that many people <laughs> attend a work, their workshops over 20 years. So clearly, clearly people are resonating with it, um, you know, for, for lots of reasons. But it, it is something that I take, I absolutely love it. And that's probably the first thing I need to say, that um, every day I'm getting out of bed and making a difference 
to the most vulnerable people in Australia and it doesn't get much greater than that, does it? No, absolutely. And, you know, have you started to see a change? Have you started to see a movement? Um, so it's actually 1998 um, that I started Indigenous Psychological Service, so 20 years um, last year. I should actually say also that we've, that's in the complete absence of government funding, which is something that I don't <clears throat> talk about very much. So we, haven't, we don't have one set of government funding, never have had, and do considerable amount of um, free or pro bono work, and all of our research is being done out of out of our own pocket, basically. So, I think um, the, the changes that I've actually seen, I think generation. Look, I'm excited about this generation. I think someone like me, I don't want me to be an outlier in terms of Indigenous people, mm. and I'm not anymore. Last year, there were six Indigenous kids that graduated with medical degrees from UWA. Incredible. And for me, I think, yeah, it's great, isn't it? Like, it's this generation, for a lot of us, I'm in the second generation of workforce participation. Mm. I'm very, very lucky. My parents both work, <coughs> excuse me, so that, that was luck. Um, for a lot of Indigenous people, this is their first generation. So the litmus test should all, always be that each generation does better than the previous one. And we're not talking about that enough. But we're not talking about the many, many, many Indigenous people and communities that are doing extraordinarily well. And I've certainly seen that um, over the last, you know, two decades of doing this work. I've also seen a fundamental shift in non-Indigenous people as well, which has been really great. But there's more of an embracing of non-Indigenous people being prepared and brave enough to look at their own inherent racism. Mm. And that's the challenge. Um, And I always say that my workshop participants are so brave because... Of they, they basically lay themselves bare, and it's, and it's just so powerful to watch. So lots of really fantastic changes I've seen in the last 20 years, definitely. Here yeah. you are, would you say 25,000 people you put through your workshop? Yep. And they've said, we don't want to fund you. I'm, I'm bamboozled by that because it seems like you're doing profoundly significant work in this area for the very, the very thing that they're attempting mm. to do. Yeah, I mean, look, it's like the literally the, the, the million-dollar question, I guess, is people have said for many years, why don't government fund you? Um, I don't have an answer to that. That's basically up to government to, to determine. Certainly it's not about the lack of respect for the work. Hmm. Um, but look, ultimately, what I've actually learned is it's, it's 20 years down the track. Thank goodness I don't have government funding. Um, I think what happens, I learned very early in the piece, is... I was in government for seven years as a child protection worker and I ultimately knew that to achieve great-scale change, I had to go out and and work for myself, Mm. Um, which is kind of an indictment on government, really. But you you know that once you have funding and government-directed funding, it ties you in to a certain extent. And I wanted to be free in relation to going out and doing what what I thought instinctually would make a huge difference to my communities. And in terms of the achievements, um, you know, it's, 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 it's quite, I think they speak for themselves really, um, that people are resonating with it. You know, you achieve significant amounts more by not having your red tape around you all the time. There were things obviously that, that would have been much easier had I had government funding and there were times it, frustr- it very much frustrated me. Um, but looking back, I think it's achieved lots of things. That it's, I've achieved a lot more. But the other thing too is I stand as a role model, I think, to other Indigenous people that they can actually run successful businesses without the need for government funding. 
And so there are all these things that I didn't plot or plan or <laughs> it's just the way that it actually worked out. But it's actually a great thing now for people to feel a sense of pride that you've got an Indigenous person come from, hasn't come from any advantage at all, any yep. advantage at all, um, and has gone on to run a successful business for 20 years, all in the absence of government funding. So, I, you know, it's, yeah. It's absolutely outstanding. I mean, I think you've you've kind of already asked, answered this question about three different times, um, but I, I, still, I still kind of want to know, um, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you finally retire and it's all said and done and dusted. Um, <laughs> You're trying to make me retire there, are you? I'm not trying. I gave you 30 years, 40 years. (laughs) All right, that's okay. We'll we'll work with that. Um, (laughs) What do you hope your legacy is? You know, I mean, that might sound like a bit of pride-filled question, but I I feel like, um, you know... it's actually not, no. Okay. It's actually not, yeah. And it's funny because you do get, you know, this really interesting psychologist, Erickson, that talks about, you know, it's a developmental psychologist that talks about life stages and so forth and... That's for me. Everything's all about the legacy now. Um, yeah, I've, I've presented at probably eighty keynotes international. Of you know, I'm a kid from the Pilbara. I never expected to achieve very much in life at all. So I'm one of those very rare people that can honestly say, hand on heart, that I have exceeded every expectation I ever had for myself. <laughs> and that's such a by, by a country mile. I often sit there and I go, Tracy, you grew up. You know, your family grew up on stations. Your, your, your mum, you know, your parents didn't go past year three in education. It, it's a level of craziness that I've achieved what I have. Um, so for me, it's all about this generation now. Um, last year, in October last year, I launched the Dr. Tracy Westerman Aboriginal Psychology Scholarship Program. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I'm just incredibly excited about. I actually put um, my own money into it to get it started. So $50,000 of my own cash. Amazing. And that's over 10 years, so $10,000 $10, a year. And the idea is that we target rural and remote Indigenous people at Curtin University to study psychology. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why that's been done is, is lots of things is, despite, for example, the Kimberley having the highest rates of child suicide in the world, to my knowledge, they have never had an Indigenous psychologist in the Kimberley. Unbelievable. The Kimberley. Yeah. That's, in, that's insane. It's insane. So um, Kim Beasley, um, Governor Kim Beasley, jumped on board as a patron. Curtin University jumped on board straight away. It is it is so exciting. Um, and I think Governor Beasley put it really well when he, was, when he jumped on his patron. He said, Tracy, this is so simple, this idea, that people get it. They get the need. Our highest risk communities are the remote ones. Ultimately, local people are the ones that are always going to be there and stay. So it makes sense that we skill up a whole cohort of Indigenous psychologists. I, I want 100, 200 Tracy Westermans. You know, mm. I don't want the legacy and the things that I've developed in my brain to die with me, effectively. So the scholarship is exciting. It's not just about the money, though. I'll actually personally mentor whoever, you know, the, the, the recipients, which means that they'll be trained up in, in evidence-based practice and, and go back to those communities where they're most needed. I... You know, as a person who struggles with depression and anxiety and been to see counsellors about it and, and sat down mm. with that, I, I, I think to myself, in those moments where I've needed to see a counsellor and had to book in, I, I am spoilt mm. for choice. You know, like I jump on the yeah. internet, there's 16 yeah. people in the local area. <laughs> I can then narrow it down yeah. and say, all right, I want a Christian counsellor as well. Yeah. Let's see, we've got one who's a faith-based counsellor. I don't want a male, I want a female. Like, you know, like I mean, it was like... 
seriously, I had every choice. It was Baskin and Robbins of yeah. ice cream for, for psychological services, right? Yeah, right. And I could yeah. not imagine the plight of a, you know, 16, 17-year-old in the Kimberleys who goes, I'm dealing with something. Yeah. I've got no I've got like no framework to do it. And nice. I've literally got no cho- choices to work through it with anyone because when I was 16, there was a little bit of stigma attached to having a, a mental illness. But mm. you could still find someone to go and see. Like, you know, you, there Somebody, was yeah, there was definitely. still a treatment plan. But to have a situation where you're in the Kimberleys in 2019 and you've got nobody to talk to is no one. Yeah. unbelievable. Correct. Yeah, and I think um, the coroner's inquest, I mean, her report just came down, 13 suicide deaths of um, beautiful young Indigenous kids in the Kimberley. And um, her, her report was released on the 7th of, of, of February now. The thing that's not a surprise to me at all is that not one of those children, not one of them, had had a mental health assessment. Now, wrap your head around that. This is Australia. This is a country where people should rightly, as you pointed out, have the choice, have the opportunity equally as any person does. So there were instances, there were instances, for example, where children had um, threatened suicide. Parents had gone into whatever services were available locally and they were either appointments were cancelled or they were told just to, it'll be all right and don't do anything silly. Wow. Um, so not one of them had a mental health assessment. Now, my frustration was that mental health assessment was one out of 42 of the recommendations from the coroner. Now, if you can't assess someone, you can't prevent, you can't treat. So <clears throat> that's why the um, symptom checklist that I've developed is so crucial to that because... Again, it is the most complicated area you can work in. Suicide prevention is incredibly complex as an assessment. So if you don't, you know, that that's something that um, that is shocking to me, but not a surprise at all. Incredible. And, and the fact that you oh. just think it's just a, like, all you do is you get, tra- like, I kind of think you work through the process, like just get trained, learn how to administer the assessment, oh. and you can actually impact and save lives effectively. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, assessment is obviously the first part to yeah. it. But, and the next bit is actually training people, and like you've said, the cultural barriers. I mean, you can get, as a parent, imagine having a child caught in a group of mental illness, taking them into it. There's no services around. Then when you do finally find a service, the cultural barriers are so great that any opportunities for healing are effectively lost. Yeah. So then they're left to it. What ends up happening in the remote communities is they accommodate or they deal with as much as they can. But I think the thing that really infuriates me, I'm going to be very honest, is when we have things like Indigenous suicides, as an example, we consistently we consistently have this blame the Aboriginal community mentality that gets attached to it. It's the alcohol, it's the sexual abuse, it's all these sorts of things where I think when a non-Indigenous kid dies by suicide, we rightly look to failures in systems mm. and, in, in, and we look at ourselves as a society Whereas when an Indigenous kid suicides, we look at deficits in their families or in their culture as explanatory of. And so that needs to, we need to shift the narrative on this. Um, these, there is just a lack of empathy for Indigenous people who are bereaved by suicide, which in and of itself creates ongoing risk for them in terms of complicated bereavement. So we need to, you know, Australia just needs to have a little bit more caring, I think, a little bit more empathy for, you know, the same about kids as ten, young as 10 that are choosing the option of death instead of life in our communities. Mm. Um, and significant drivers of that are actually racism, significant drivers. 
So we all, we're all part of the answer, aren't we? Part of the solution to, to these issues, not just Indigenous communities. I think it's to just being willing to humbly learn. Like I, I feel like the, I grow more okay. when I'm willing to sit under someone and go, I'm willing to have my pretenses and my current knowledge shattered by someone yeah, who's willing yeah. to share the situation as it actually is. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. But getting people to place themselves in that position is a real challenge. I, when I, um, I think I mentioned the occasional address that I go, it's around 1,300 people, and I very rarely prepare speeches. <laughs> I just talk a bit off the cuff. And I thought, you know what, Trace, you've actually got to explain to these people why you love this so much. Yeah. Because these are our future. These kids are our future. They're psychology graduates, they're social work graduates. And then I arrived at this really interesting thing, and that is that I've never been into an Aboriginal community and not loved it and not seen kids who are adored, kids who are loved. Lots of Aboriginal people are doing extremely well. Lots of Aboriginal kids are doing extremely well. Yeah. And optimism isn't something that we portray when it comes to Indigenous communities. And so that's incredibly frustrating, but... I think for me, what you find when you're in an Aboriginal community is people are so grateful for your presence. And what it does is it forces you to look at, it challenges you spiritually, it challenges you intellectually, but ultimately it makes you a significantly better person. Because when you're around people who don't have advantage, it makes you appreciate your advantage even more on a daily basis. And so that's the sort of stuff that people just need to experience and the number of graduates who come up to me afterwards and said i want to go and work in an aboriginal community now. <laughs> and you go yes my work my work is done here you know fantastic <laughs> that's what i want i want i want people to be inspired by the oldest living culture in the world under our nose we've got the oldest living culture in the world and you know reconciliation australia says that only nine percent of non-indigenous australians regularly socialize with indigenous people so the fundamentals of of appreciating and understanding the culture just just aren't there. Tracy, it has been an absolute delight getting an opportunity to talk to you. We love your passion. <laughs> we you. love your humility. Thank and we really are moved by the work you're doing. And I feel Wonderful. a little bit wiser for talking to you. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you so much for the interest as well. It's, um, it's been fantastic to, to chat with you and your listeners. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.